I'd like to start the evening with a chant. And this chant is an invitation to our supporters, our protectors, our guardian angels, our ancestors. They really like the dark. They like the candlelight. That's how they like it in here. And we have different ideas and cosmologies about these unseen beings. And so the invitation is to really take this lightly, that if it means calling on your, um, your whole lineage of protectors, please do that. It could also be just resting the heart in the memory of a loved one or sending the goodness of your practice to someone you know who uh, could use it. All those who are supporting us to be on retreat. So this is called the invitation to the devas. And Tuari was talking about the devas, the celestial beings last night. And in the Buddha's stories, there's this whole pantheon of gods and goddesses and non-binary angels who are gathering and they love it when we do Dharma practice. So this is simply telling them, like, come, come, we're practicing here and inviting them. <clears throat> so I'm just going to start with this short chant. Aritavanametam Sameta Baranta Awikita Chita Paritam Banantu Sage Kamecharupe Giri Sikarata Te Chantalike Wimane Diperate Chagame Taruanagahane Gehawatum Hike Te Umachayantu Dewa Jalatala Wisame Yakaganda Banaga Titanta Santikeyam Muniwara Wachanam Sadawome Sunantu Uradasana kalo ayam baranta Damasawana kalo ayam baranta Sanga parirupasana kalo ayam baranta I'm going to turn the lights on now, and just to prepare you for the light. Here it comes. Okay, there we go. So the Davids, they don't mind if you're nervous. Your voice shakes. It's all good. They're happy anyway. <laughs> and I have this image often when I'm sitting in practice. And, you know, we, we hit so many edges and so many bumps along the way, don't we? And sometimes I just have this image, this high ceiling of the, the goddesses, the gods, like sitting there, like watching us and sprinkling dust, like blessings down from the ceiling, like just so proud of us, 
they're just so happy that we're here and that we're trying our best. So I offer that image to you. They're always there. They're just like sprinkling their blessings. So we're at the heart of the retreat. And there can be so much going on. You know, we really know. We know we've had the honor to talk to, to all of you here. We know there's so much that's in the room. There's awakening happening in this room. There's also a lot of struggle and very real face-to-face suffering. You know, all of our difficulties get really technicolor in this practice. It's one function of, of the meditation that as we get quieter, everything gets louder, as you've probably seen. So it's really nice to call on accompaniment, on support, you know, to remember often throughout the practice, even if we're doing great, to remember that we're not alone. And that even if it feels like we're really alone, we are accompanying ourselves on the path. It takes so much kindness, this path, doesn't it? takes so much patience and willingness and really grace with ourselves. These wobbly hearts just trying to find their way. So that's really what this talk is about. This talk is about how we arrive at metta through the wisdom of the practice. And Matthew keeps telling us this, that when all of the rest falls away, that what we have is love. But today at lunch, he was like, they don't need to hear that all the rest is love. That's not going to help them. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm going to say tonight. (laughs) So take it or leave it for what it's worth. How is this a path of love? How does this lead to, to metta? And love is a complicated word. Right? So if friendliness is better for you, or warmth, or simple care, that's what I want to talk about. But first I want to really touch in on how this wisdom practice that we're doing can lead us to this open-heartedness. So this might be my very favorite sutta. You've heard some favorite suttas here. So this is about rohitasa. And the suttas are all populated with different kinds of beings. This Rohitasa, I think, and my teacher Pascal Leclerc agrees, he, he says that Rohitasa is definitely non-binary. Rohitasa presents as a very lively, energetic uh, deva. Here's another deva. And they're very quick, Rohitasa. They're running all over the place, very energized, excited, adventurous. I'm going here, I'm going there. And and they, um, they're actually, Rohitasa is known as a powerful skywalker. So someone who can walk really fast across long distances. And they say they, um, they travel as fast as a shooting arrow across the land. And they come to the Buddha a little bit proud, I think, of this. Like, Buddha, Buddha, like, I've been running around the globe. I've just been going at it. I've gone many times around the globe. And I'm looking, I'm traveling, I'm looking for the end of the world. And, and they say, Buddha, can, can I find the end of the world by traveling? And the Buddha says, no, Rohitasa, no. You cannot find the end of the world by traveling. I also say, Rohitasa, the world, the beginning of the world, the end of the world, And the cause of the world is in this fathom-long body with its sensations, perceptions, cognition. The whole world is in here. I love this because don't we feel like Rohitasa sometimes? We're just like running and the next thing and we got to get the next thing and do the next thing and get it done and we're so busy all the time. And there's a little bit that we might even be proud of that, like <laughs> getting a lot done. <laughs> even in retreat, all the things I'm doing. 
But the Buddha was so kind, you know. I think with, it was with a lot of love that the Buddha said to Rohitasa, like, just look here. The whole world, everything that you're looking for is just right here. And that's, I think, why we keep pointing to this moment. This moment. It's all here in the body. We've been talking a lot about the six senses. Paying attention to your sensory experience. So we've got seeing and hearing, smelling. That's been a big one in this retreat. <laughs> so talk about smelling. Tasting. Sensing with the body could be touching. So those are the usual five. And then in the Buddhist psychology, we have six senses. The sixth is the chitta, this heart-mind. So all thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states, that's part of the sixth sense. So we have these six senses. Sometimes they're called the six sense spheres, which I think is interesting. Pointing to the circular experience we might have of the senses. And this is it. The Buddha called this the all. And if we just pause for a moment to take that in, it's like everything is made up of a, a symphony of instruments, and there's only six of them. And that is all that is happening in any moment, just those six. If we're sighted, if we're hearing, if we feel sensations in the body, taste in the mouth, smell in the nose, and all of the machinations of the heart-mind, the moods, the thoughts, the emotions, that's it. The symphony has only six instruments, and yet, look how complex the world is birthed, the beginning of the world, all this. So I want to just put a pin in this idea that emotions are the sixth sense, because we had a question about that, and I want to say more. Emotions are a very important part of this path, very important instrument in the symphony. So I'll say more, but as to where I was pointing to so beautifully, we want to know their impermanence, just like the other senses. We want to know how they self-liberate. All of the senses self-liberate. There is a birthing, an endurance, and an ending, a falling. So it's just like the Buddha was telling Bahia last night, right? Bahia of the bark cloth. Bahia is, is known to be indigenous because he was wearing this clothing made of bark, living in the caves in India. And so the, the Buddha said to Bahia, herein train yourself in the seen, only the seen. In the heard, only the heard. In the cognized, or the thinking, only the thinking. See, he said, thinking's part of the practice. Okay. And this is how you should train yourself, Bahia. This is exactly what we've been saying. Just be with the simplicity of what is happening right now. So just like with Rohitasa, all suffering is born right here in these six senses. The end of suffering, all liberation, all freedom happens right here. And this hereness, this present moment, can teach us some, some things. I love in the Tibetan tradition, they call it the guru of phenomena. That all phenomena are just teaching us. They're just here to teach us about reality. The floor, the space, everybody else, the sounds, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Everyone is here just teaching us. And they're teaching us about the beauty of this present moment, the radical an unbridled hereness. At dinner, Tueri and Eugene and I were talking about this, and we're talking about pleasure, and I like pleasure. I'm into pleasure, and we were saying, <laughs> we were saying that uh, nothing is more pleasurable than the present moment. 
I'm still like figuring that one out. It was such a teaching, you know. How is that true? So this hereness, this hereness, this nowness, is has six instruments only. And there's this teaching we've been pointing to, but I want to unpack a little bit. And maybe you've had this experience already, but when we slow down, we start to see that this is the whole world right here. There's a coming together. There's a kind of confluence of factors that make for this moment. So every moment kind of a flickering process that has to do with knowing. And there's three components. So I'm just going to take seeing. If you're sighted, I'm going to take seeing as an example. So in a moment of seeing, there's three things. There's an object, and that's whatever you're seeing in this moment. Like I'm seeing this beautiful painting in the back, or you could be seeing me up here, or these statues. You could be seeing color. That's your object, first thing. Second thing, you need an eye organ that's working. It has all of its faculty of seeing. And some of us have better or worse seeing capacity, but you need an eye that works in some way. Object, eye. But then you also need a third component, and that is the eye consciousness. You need this mind that is knowing, that can say or use the label or the note, oh, seeing. Seeing's happening. I know that I'm seeing. So like in a corpse, there's the object and there's an eye organ, but there's not the consciousness there. Or if your eyes are closed, you have the eye organ, you have the knowing, but you might not have an object there. So any moment without those three, you don't have the thing arising. You see? So same thing with hearing, right? You need a sound. You need a working ear organ, and you need the consciousness that knows hearing is happening. So I was here, I was listening to all these teachings on a long retreat at IMS once. It was fall. It was about this time of year, actually. And it can, you know, it can feel kind of like heavy and meticulous and like intellectual, this thing of like, okay, three things every moment, an object a ear door or eye door, like a sensory organ, and then a consciousness. What does that mean? Right? I was thinking about that. And I was doing my walking meditation in the garden because I always go for the best walking spot. <laughs> also, walking has always been hard for me. So I was doing my walking meditation in a place that was pleasant. And there was a lot of flocks blooming at the time. If you've ever been to IMS, they have these beautiful gardens of flocks, these really fragrant autumn flowers. So I would go very diligently down my walking path, and then I would stop, and I would be with a flower, (sighs) trying to soothe myself to do this for 45 minutes. And one of those times, pausing, I was with this flower, really like this flower, and I watched a bee, very fat, beautiful, fuzzy, black, bumblebee, just like rolling around in the flower, like getting all polleny, and I could watch the pollen collect, you know, because my mind was pretty clear, as so I could see the pollen on his hind legs, and he was like bumbling around, it's kind of heavy, and like I had all this love for the bee, like, wow, this is happening. <laughs> and then something really happened. It was like reality changed. And all I saw was this very quick moment by moment, like shudder, like movement, 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 seeing, 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 seeing. Everything else was gone. It was, everything was pixelated. It was like all that existed in that moment was that momentary like object and knowing, object and knowing, object and knowing, object and knowing, really fast. Shudders, right? Going da 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 And I had this insight that like, That is all there ever is. (sighs) And all of the like big emotions and the story I was rolling around in and the like epic legends, right? Literature, all of this, all it is is like shudders of moments, one right after the other. It's the whole thing, the whole show. 
I did not even know what to do. Like it was, and it, so it was amazing. And this whole world changed. Then I thought, okay, the world's always going to, it's never going to be, go back. Like it's just always going to be different. And at the same time, it felt so good. It felt so good. It was like a moment of coming more into contact with reality. So we keep talking about conditioned things, right? The chant at night, all conditioned things are impermanent. So that's what that's pointing to. We have to have all these conditions in place. We have seeing, we have knowing, all of these things coming together moment by moment. Those, reality, that's conditioned by all these causes and conditions. But the Buddha, when he sat under the Bodhi tree and awakened, he said he saw the unconditioned. So what is that? You know, here we are just being with these objects, coming together, like being in the moment, the unconditioned. Tuari spoke to this really beautifully last night. She was talking about fire. Fire was a really big part of the Buddha's teachings and in another really good sutta. He says, yogis, all is burning. All is burning. What is it that's burning? The eye is burning. The ear is burning. Eye contact is burning. Painful, pleasant, neutral feeling that arises, conditioned by eye contact is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fires of greed, hate, and delusion. Burning with rebirth, old age, and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. So look, we have all these components of a fire that are coming together, that are contacting moment by moment, and it's burning. All is burning, all those sense fears. Right? That's what she was saying. So conditionality. And then what the Buddha saw was that when those conditions aren't there, we don't have a fire. There's no fire. So instead of layering logs on, I spoke with some of you today about how you saw how your mind was like layering logs onto the fire. We feed it. Instead of doing that, the moments between the seconds, like Richard Wagamuzi was, was pointing to, when the fire goes out, or like Bahia, the, the Buddha says, when you're just with the seen and the heard and the cognized, you'll not be in there, you'll not be with it, you'll not be identified with it, and then you will neither be here nor there nor beyond or in between the two. And just this is the end of suffering. So he's pointing to that. When all the conditions, there's a kind of falling apart, the fire isn't clinging to the wood anymore. And then there's no fire. Quiet. So we've all had these little, we've had this. I'm sure you've seen moments where it's like all hot and tight and contracted and then something self-liberates or something else happens and things are different. It's a different moment. You've seen the space between the thoughts. You've seen these little tastes. They're happening a lot, all the time. And it seems simple enough, but because we're so trained habitually to string together these moments and have a whole big storyline take birth and then cling and crave and have all kinds of reactions and stories and we like and we don't like and we're all very confused about the whole thing and we don't know what to do. It takes a lot of effort, this wise effort. It takes a lot of diligence and calm being with to see how, how can I stop lighting that fire? And this is the magic we've been pointing to. It's like all we have to do is just show up. And the mind is kind of like finding its way, very organic, pretty like awkwardly sometimes. But there's distinct phases, and it's been so fun to hear you come in and tell us about some of these experiences you had. So just to normalize, sometimes along the way, 
things can feel very layered. Like we see one cause and then we see the ripple effect and we see the ripple effect and the ripple effect, right? You're seeing layers of your mind. That can be part of it. Other times we get so sensitive and it's like we, everybody's watching us and we walk into the hall and somebody said today walking into the hall is like double jeopardy. It's like <laughs> we're all like interacting with each other. And there's like so much going on. You can feel that way. We're so sensitive. Or other times it can feel like things are going really, really fast and we can't be mindful because it's just too, everything's slipping away, slipping away, slipping away. It gets very quick. Other times we just get awash with with mountains of grief or just these huge, big, blossoming emotions that happen. They feel like generations of emotion running through our bodies. Other times we can feel so light, like we're just sort of floating through the day, just flowing through, everything's just happening. We're like... I got this. It's great. It's just happening. No problem. Maybe I'm there. Maybe this is it. Like, I'm good. Right? We have one sit and we're like, that was Nibbana. I can't imagine anything better. (laughs) That just happened. Right? This, This can show up and then the moments change and we're like, whoa, I'm totally lost in aversion for the rest of the day. And I cannot figure out what happened in that good sit. Got to get back there. Other times we can feel like it's a dream. Like everything is just like illusory. We're trying, we're trying to kind of like solidify reality, but it's all made of clouds. Right? You can feel this way. Or, and I know this is happening for some, we touch into a deeper sense of emptiness. Maybe it's boundless, maybe it's spaciousness, or just like, can't even describe, we touch into a deeper settledness in the body, something new, and we get very scared. So fear can come up on this path because it's so disorienting when we hit some of these stages of insight. And in fact, as we're with these heart minds, this chitta, the biggest space is in the mind. The mind can feel very boundless, very big. And this is why Matthew so beautifully in saying, he's pointing to how we, we try to find security within that space. So we have all of this armor of selfing and theories and judgments and fixing, controlling, Right? We're find, trying to find security in the middle of this huge, big, spacious mind. And some part of us knows, actually, that strategizing isn't going to work. But whoa, then we double down and try harder. Right? I think that's kind of why we're here. It's like all of our, our solutions, the ways we just try so hard, and there's something that just keeps slipping away, and it doesn't work, and the security actually isn't secure. So when all of those start to fall, like they do in retreat, we can be confronted with this very big emptiness. And it's easy to slide into nihilism then, right? I've been so guilty of this. Everything's empty. It doesn't matter anymore. Just going to a teacher, talk to teachers. I saw it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do. I spent a couple of years being like, I don't need to practice. It's all empty, right? So we can fall too far on the emptiness scale. And one teacher, I think it was uh, in the Mahayana tradition, um, who wrote, Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna, who wrote The Middle Way, he says, you know, those who believe too much in reality, they're kind of foolish. But those who believe too much in emptiness, they're even worse. <laughs> right? So it's that middle way between, I think Matthew said this, between the relative, dual reality that we're all in, and the empty, boundless space, non-duality. But we do, we have to work with the fear. We have to know that fear is part of this. We have to confront this sense of uh, the analogy that one Tibetan teacher uses is it's as if we 
jumped out of the plane. We're skydiving, right? We jump out of the plane of our security and our strategies and our ego and all of the things that we used to think were true. We jump out and we're falling through space. And we think, but it's okay, you know, I'm doing the Dharma. We graft the Dharma into the infrastructure of our neuroses. <laughs> you think, I've got this parachute, right? The Dharma's going to save me. I've got a backpack on, parachute. And then here's where we hit another moment. We look, there's no parachute, no backpack. That's how the kind of fear can happen when we enter into emptiness. Like, oh, no, nothing, nothing. There's, no, there's nothing, right? So that can be, we can pit pockets of that. Then, next part, we look down and we see there's no ground either. And it's so blissful, like, phew, it's okay that I'm falling through space. So the Buddha, he's so beautiful, he taught his son, you know, he had a son, Rahula, so he taught Rahula, and Rahula was led to enlightenment through the Buddha. And what he said to his son was, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you do this, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade the mind and remain. Space is not established anywhere. That's self-liberation. That's that, right? This mind that's like Teflon or space doesn't remain. There's still contact. There's still Vedana. There's still pleasant, unpleasant. We don't have the same push-pull. So this poet, Teddy Macker, said it really well. This is the mosquito among the raindrops. The mosquito among the raindrops. It's equivalent to getting hit, the scientists say, by a school bus and hit every 20 seconds. And the mosquito lives. In fact, she doesn't even try to avoid the drops. No zigzagging, no ducking, no hiding under the eaves. How does she do it? No resistance to the force. She hitches a ride on the blow, a stowaway on that which brings her down. She becomes one with the drop knowing that to fly again, she must fall. So we're, we're recognizing the nature of space. And when we start to be okay with that kind of emptiness, that newness, we start to see that it's actually also full. We swing back from nihilism into, but wait, there is a lot going on here. And each moment there's a contact. There's an object and a contact and a touching. I did a couple of sessions at a Zen center in Crestone, Colorado, these big snow mountains and like gnarled juniper trees in the winter. And I remember walking out of the Zendo. In Zen, they don't tell you any of this. They're just like, sit, you know, you'll figure it out. You're good. So all the silence. And then we would come out of the Zendo, and you could see these big snow mountains up against the sky, and it just felt like the whole world was touching me, like the sky and the snow and the juniper and the scent, the high mountains. It's like that's the contact that's happening in every moment. This intimacy this intimacy with things. We're getting very intimate with the present moment. And when we see this fullness, the fullness of the senses, the sense of like deep connection, that in fact we we notice our goodness, we see the goodness that's here, the responsiveness, the sense of deep reciprocity with the world, and that is the love we've been pointing to. It doesn't have to be big and highfalutin love. It's just that sense of being touched, of meeting and greeting each moment like a friend. Like this, yes. 
right? A deep kind of yes to the world, to this, this now, this heart. So we more and more, and we've seen this over the week, like there's a more attunement, a deeper resonance a kind of harmony even, even with the difficulty, the disharmonious, there's like, oh yeah, this. So tenderizing, we get very open. That's that sensitivity we have with each other. You know, the whole kind of dance of moving through space and there's like ripples, you know, of how we're like negotiating the space together. And we get kind of scared because it's intense, that kind of connection. And we have a lot of like, am I okay? I don't know. Are you okay? I don't know. What do I do? You know, there can be a lot of that like, whew, very tender, the space. But it's because we're opening to our deep contact, this interdependence, this resonance that we feel with each other. And this can bring a great, great energy of metta, a great energy of caring. So this is a poem inspired by an early Buddhist nun. And uh, there was a whole crowd of women in the beginning who got free, training with the Buddha. And this poem is inspired by one of her Um, one of the women who was free, and this is kind of her declaration of freedom. It's called Mitta. Her name was Mitta, or friend. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. So maybe, this is a little more than 10 years ago, I was in India, in Bodh Gaya, for a prayer festival. And there's a winter prayer festival that happens every year under the Bodhi tree, where the Buddha was enlightened. And it's many lineages come together, and they do like candlelight and chanting at night, a little bit like we did tonight, but much better. And all of these, you know, bowing and chanting, it's just very beautiful. It's, a, it's all these world, you know, prayers for world peace and prayers for goodness and things. And so I was there and um, on pilgrimage and my Tibetan teacher, uh, who I had been very devoted to for many years, is a 17th Karmapa. He's quite young. Maybe now he's like 35-ish, but back then it's 25. And um, he was staying there in a temple near the, the Bodhi tree. And so very generously, he was having audiences. So he was seeing students and kind of inviting us in. And all we had to do was like sign up for a time. And I was so touched because he's pretty famous. It's hard to have an audience with the 17th Karmapa. And I was so excited. So I went in, we had some friends with us and went in, signed all our names and climbed up to the third floor of this temple where he was staying. And, you know, he's this 25-year-old kid kind of, and he wasn't sitting on any throne. We just small room. We came in, we bowed, just sat on the floor, a tiny little space. And here's this Karmapa. He's like second only to the Dalai Lama. You know, he's a very important lineage holder in the Tibetan tradition. And he had his robes on, but he was kind of like slumped, you know, in a bad posture. And he had this bright orange beanie that he was wearing on his head. And he, I think he's a little shy. Like he just kept kind of adjusting his beanie. And the first thing that we did was uh, my partner and I were engaged at the time and we gave him an invitation to our wedding. <laughs> we're like, will you come? <laughs> so that felt important. Um, but then we had, you know, an opportunity to ask him questions. And so one friend we were with asked a very basic question. So in Tibetan Buddhism, the whole foundation is compassion. And we use this word bodhicitta, 
right? So bodhi means awake, and citta is the heart-mind. So bodhicitta basically means compassion, this awakened heart. But my friend, he just asked the karmapa, he's like, what is bodhicitta? What does that mean? And of course I was like, I've been studying for like 10 years, that is a dumb question. <laughs> so simple, awakened heart. So we asked the karmapa, and this karmapa, he's like got his beanie on, he kind of like pulls his beanie, and he's like, gosh, like, I, like, he seems so stumped. He's like, <laughs> I really had to think for a long time. He's like, I, bodhicitta, bodhicitta. You know, it was like the hardest question for him. It was so sweet. He just really seemed confused. And then he said, you know, I don't really know much about it, but when I practice, this is what I do. He said, I imagine compassion like the wind. And I imagine the wind just blowing across the fields and touching all of the grains of wheat, all the grasses, everything, every stem of grass, just across the mountains, across the fields, touching everyone, everything. That kind of wind. Bodhicitta like the wind. And then he said the same thing like the sun. I imagine bodhicitta like the sun where it's just shining equally on everything. And it's big, right? It's boundless. That's bodhicitta. That's how, that's just, you know, I don't really know, but that's what I do in my practice. I just love that. Bodhicitta like the wind. It falls on everything. So that's kind of what we're training in. Can we have a heart as wide as the world, like Sharon Salzberg says? Or um, the Buddha said it too, you know, Ananda, his beloved cousin. Ananda's really a sweet character. We all love Ananda. He was a little slow. He was kind of like the last one to get enlightened. We love Ananda. And so he's, he's trying. He's really trying. He keeps running. He runs up to the Buddha and he's like, Buddha, Buddha, I, I figured it out. I think I got it now. He's like, spiritual friendship is half of the holy life. And the Buddha was like, no, Ananda, no, no, not that. Spiritual friendship is the whole of the holy life. You know, and we can hear that. We can think, yes, it's the Sangha. It's like, of course, it's being a spiritual friend to everyone and having these relationships with people who are on the path, and it's true. But lately I've been thinking, like, what if that what if that teaching, spiritual friendship is the whole of the holy life, what if that simply means in a very broad sense that we're just in spiritual friendship with everything, with ourselves, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, with other people and their hearts and their minds and their bodies, spiritual friendship, just connection with the world, right? What if that all that we're doing, the whole of the holy life. Every connection becomes meaningful. Every moment becomes meaningful then. And I think I see some of you, I think maybe you've seen that, you know, how this heart, as it starts to see more clearly, there's a natural opening. The natural, like, oh, yeah, I kind of, these people are kind of okay, you know, it's kind of okay, sweet. They're really nice when they're not talking. <laughs> Dogo Kensei Rinpoche, really wonderful. Dzogchen master, he says, when we recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So again, we don't have to push, we don't have to force these Brahma-viharas, that as we keep doing our practice, this energy dawns uncontrived and effortless. So I have two stories to illustrate this. My partner and I lived for a year on the island of Oahu. He was doing his internship in a local uh, mental health clinic. 
working with Native Hawaiians. And we practiced at a Tibetan temple in Honolulu. And there's this wonderful practitioner there named George. George was there all the time. We would come, he would greet us at the door, welcome. He would be there like putting out the cushions, making tea, be the last one to leave. And George was very clear, he was Okinawan. He was from the island of Okinawa, very proud of his cultural heritage. And as I got curious and learned some about the history of Okinawa, it was colonized by Japan, but they have a very clear, very distinct cultural heritage, different language, whole different way of life there. Okinawa grows the purple sweet potatoes. And George, in his way at the center, he never talked so much about this value of Okinawan culture, but he embodied it. And as I came to learn more, it's called uh, ikigai, that the reason for waking in the morning is to participate in the community. The spirit of working together. So you get up in the morning to put out the cushions and to make the tea for people and to greet them, give them rides wherever they need to go. You know, he's always, I'm going to go pick up this person, right? He's always doing that. He's recording the talks, like just part of it. And there was this real sense of teamwork, right? Many hands make the work light. That's ikigai. And George embodied that. It was like, that's the deepest dharma here. You know, so beautiful. You can feel that dance that we're doing with all of our yogi jobs. Like the center says, so beautiful. It's been open for more than 20 years. Look how beautiful it still is. Because all these many hands, the staff, all of us, we're caring, caring for it. Okay, and then last story, another one from Hawaii. I really found a lot of um, inspiration from living in the islands. So much of that ikigai, like just very sense of um, real pain and also a lot of aloha spirit in Hawaii. So Eddie Aikau, some of you might have heard of Eddie, Eddie Aikau. He was born in 1946. He was a Hawaiian lifeguard and a surfer on Waimea Bay and really famous. He was very good at surfing, but also really good at saving people. So he saved like more than 500 people. He was very young and was just a really famous lifeguard. So in 1978, the Polynesian Voyaging Society um, had this idea they were going to build a traditional Polynesian canoe, a double-hulled canoe, and sail from Hawaii to Tahiti, to Tahiti using only traditional navigation techniques, tracing back the voyage that the original Tahitians made uh, to the islands of Hawaii. So it's going to be this 30-day voyage, and they got together a very small crew who knew all of these navigation techniques, and they invited Eddie because he was so skillful with the ocean and kind of famous and beloved. He had really beloved personality. And so it was like small crew, maybe 12, 14 people. They set sail, traditional canoe. And it was a big deal. There was a lot of publicity and stuff around this big voyage. And they didn't get very far. They just got south of the island of Molokai, and something broke, and they capsized. So they had all these people in life jackets floating and their call, their equipment, you know, their radio, radar, radio, that wasn't working very well. Nobody was coming to help them. They couldn't get a hold of the Coast Guard. It was hours and hours in the cold ocean. And there's a sense of like, we don't, what are we going to do? We don't know what we're going to do. And so Eddie, the story goes, without a doubt, he just said, I'm going to go. I'm going to go on my surfboard. And there's, you can see there's a video movie that was made about him, and you just like, can see him paddling away. He's like, I'm going to go. I'm going to find somebody, paddle off in his life on his, on his uh, surfboard. It's very touching. And so some hours later, and I think finally the Coast Guard did find this crew, but they didn't find Eddie. They never found Eddie. But all over Hawaii, still... This gets me. See all the, like the bumper stickers and then the cars and all around and like the stop signs and things. You'll see a sign that says, Eddie would go. And that's, I want to be like that. Don't we? Don't we want to be like that? That all the practice that we're doing here in this very broken 
and very aching world, complex, unsolvable kind of world. Isn't it just to have a responsive heart that's like, I'm going to go help. I'm going to do what I can. And we can trust that because that's in us already. And it's happening and it's growing moment by moment right here. Hmm. Yeah. We don't really know how to do it, and that's okay, right? We don't need to know. It may be that when we no longer know what to do or where to go or how to make it happen, that is our real work. We've come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. It is the impeded stream that sings. So we have to trust the not knowing and trust the goodness of our own hearts and that it can lead us just right along our way. So let's just sit quietly together for a moment. When we recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. Thank you for your kind attention. And we'll do some walking and then we'll come back to chant and we'll do the the metta chant that you have on your chant sheets. So if you want to bring in your chant sheet, make sure you have one. And the phrases are all laid out there for you. It's really nice. I think we'll go through all of them. So um, yeah, come back at nine. Okay, see you soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.